Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program's Foundations in Faith. The Gospel that we're looking at today is the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 27. And it's that part of the gospel which follows immediately upon Peter's confession. Remember that when Peter, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they made some suggestions of common ideas and popular ideas. And Jesus then looks at them and says, then who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus then turns to Peter and says, Blessed are you, happy are you, joyful are you, Peter, because you haven't done this, you haven't understood this on your own. It's been revealed to you by my heavenly Father. In other words, this is not the fruit of uh, Peter's natural reason, but this is the fruit of divine illumination through revelation into Peter's consciousness, into his mind, into his person, into his heart. And then he says, you know, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Then this gospel starts, and this gospel says Jesus began to make it clear to the disciples that he was destined to go to Jerusalem and suffer grievously at the hands of the elders and chief priests and the scribes to be put to death and to be raised up on the third day. Now, all of this is just in some ways out of the blue. The disciples that here that we have this you know truly joyous occasion in which they have discovered through the through revelation by the father to peter that jesus is the messiah and he is the one who is going to therefore save israel all of that is kind of a joyful thing and then jesus kind of introduces this what appears to be a very dark understanding of what peter has said it's not that he hasn't mentioned suffering before and it's not that he hasn't, you know, said that it will be at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, in other words, of the whole Sanhedrin, and then that he would raise again on the third day. And we remember when he mentions before about raising from the dead, he said they have no idea what he's talking about, and they don't even have any idea what it is when he does it. So then Peter now is going to kind of flush with his... Uh, position, flush with his victory, we might say. He takes Jesus aside. Jesus is obviously discouraged. And he's obviously down. And so Jesus started to remonstrate with him, heaven preserve you, Lord. He said, this one's not going to happen to you. This is where you, Peter is not being illuminated by the Father. This is where Peter is just being Peter. He's using his own human instincts, his own human reason, his own human understanding. Here, this great discovery, I mean, try and picture this, the great discovery. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Israel, some parts of Israel has been awaiting him for centuries. And the apostles discover in Caesarea Philippi, he's here. This is him. We kind of suspect it. We kind of knew it. We kind of were kind of amazed. This is why we stayed with him. This is why we followed him. And so this is exciting, and this is great news. And everything is going to be great now because the Messiah is here. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, suffer grievously at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be put to death. 
that isn't what they thought this was all about. This isn't what they wanted to happen. And so Peter steps forward again in his leadership position and decides that he's going to console Jesus. He's going to calm him down a bit, you know, let him kind of enjoy with them the good news of the recognition of who he is. And as soon as Peter does that, Jesus, it says, turns on him and says to him, get behind me, Satan. Well, the tone of everything has just now changed tremendously. You are an obstacle in my path because the way you think is not God's way, but man's. And it is here that Jesus makes a radical distinction between natural human reason and revelation. For natural human reason acted exactly the way that Peter decided at the same time he has just been praised because he knew what he could not have known. And Jesus attributes that knowledge to the Father, not to Peter's wisdom, not to his brilliance, not to his understanding, not even to his goodness. But here is something I think that we have to pause and we have to reflect about for a while because, you know, this goes on all the time. And I think that we've talked about this before. This idea that when the revelation of God comes into the church and therefore in through the church and the sacraments into our lives and through the word into our lives, we have a tendency to reconstruct it. We have a tendency to deconstruct, I suppose, what revelation says and to reconstruct what we want it to say. And that the result of it is that there goes through the hand in hand with the spread of Christianity and with joyfulness of Christianity, hand in hand also goes the disappointment with Christianity, the personal disappointment of what happens. And, you know, I think that we have a classic example of that, not to pick on, on the Germans, but certainly in Germany, that after the Second World War, there was a serious disillusionment with the church. The idea was if we were Christians, why did we do what we did? Christianity must have failed. Because it failed, we are going to have to reconstruct it the way we think it ought to be. So they stumbled for several decades until, you know, the exposition of the sex abuse business among the clergy in Germany. And then that, that was kind of confirmation for them. See, the church has failed us. And we are disappointed in it. And so we're going to have to, like in this, we're going to have to kind of take Jesus aside. And we're going to have to kind of tell him the way things are supposed to be. And that action, that Petrine action that Peter did in the gospel is what's going on in the German synod today. And what's going on is that, oh, I'm sorry, we, we, can't, we can't accept the given. We're going to have to reconstruct it the way we want it to be because it has disappointed us. I think that when we look back and we say, is it the church? Is it the revelation? Is it the holy assembly of the people of God? Is it the sacred places where they gather? Are these what betrayed us? Or is it not sin? 
Or is it not my sin and your sin? Is it not the sin of individual people who, has betra- who have betrayed us? Is it, was it not the sin of those who turned the government of Germany toward, toward, uh, toward the extermination of uh, people they didn't like? Was that because the church was not strong enough? As an institution, no, it wasn't, because despite John Cornwall and despite the, the others who chose to attack Pius XII during the Second World War, um, Rudolf Hochuth and the deputy and so forth, despite all that, Pius XII's record is pretty impressive in that. When we really read the documentation and when we come to understand the situation he was in and the role that he was playing, it wasn't the institutional church that failed. It was individuals within it, large numbers of individuals. Did the church fail by not sufficiently catechizing? Perhaps so. It seems so. In the biographies of Benedict XVI, he reflects on that and reflects on some of the superficiality of the faith that he encountered when he was first ordained in the post-war years of the 1950s. And so, yes, there was great failure among Christians. But was that because the church itself failed? No. The church still provided the sacraments which people could use for conversion and could enter into for the conversion of their lives. The church still proclaimed the gospel and still proclaimed the word of God in the churches and the sacred places of Germany. It was, as a matter of fact, a human failure and not the failure of the church or the failure of Jesus Christ. And it was not. And I suppose, you know, whatever the purpose of it all is, who knows? But I'm sure that if someone said, you know, when this is all over, um, German Catholicism is going to be severely emotionally wounded and is going to thrash around for several decades afterward trying to find its stability, trying to find its way back to the Lord. And we would say, oh, no, no, that can't be. Well, yeah, that's the way it is. And that's what's happening, and that's exactly who Peter is here. And the Lord speaks today, and it's not just Germany, it's all over, of course, we know that. And the Lord speaks to the modern men and women the same way he spoke to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle in my path because you, the way you think is not God's way, but man's way. We don't see this in saying, well, what are you doing here, condemning all those people who are critiquing the Lord, who are critiquing the... No. Peter went on to become a great saint, and so can anyone else, despite the struggles that each person has. But what I'm saying is that this is a paradigm. While it's true in the gospel and actually happened in the gospel, it becomes a paradigm of every age as well. And it isn't just the Germans of the 21st century. It was also King Louis XIV in the 18th century, and in the 17th and 18th century in France and so forth, who I wanted to look like me and not like Jesus Christ. This is a chronic human failure. Henry VIII in England, the same thing. It's a, it's a chronic failure of humanity. It's a human failure. It's a failure of a refusal to surrender to the magnificence of the Lord's revelation. And so in this, and I think that we've also said before the truth of this as well, 
that um, the Gospels are not just historical records of the first century. The Gospels are a paradigm of reality in every age. And here we see this very clearly. We understand Peter, and we are sympathetic to Peter, that from the great joy of the recognition that the Father has given him of the who the person of Jesus Christ is, to kind of the dark forebodings of what Jesus has said to them about what is to take place. He did end it with to be raised up on the third day, but they had no idea what that meant, and they say that over and over again in the Gospels. They have no idea what it meant. And then Jesus said to his disciples, now he's going to, he's chastised Peter in a way, and said, now stop. And then he goes on and he says, this is, this is what you're, you're going to experience. This is not my, my, I've told you what my experience is going to be. Now this is going to be your experience. If anyone wants to be a follower of mine, let him renounce himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, take up his cross and follow me? Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. Why is he talking about a cross? And the issue there is, once again, it's part of the story of Roman-occupied Israel. The sight of the naked, beaten prisoners being with a, with a cross, with a crossbar strapped on their back, being driven to the places of execution by crucifixion was a very, very common sight in Palestine, in Jerusalem, of the days of, of the Lord and the days of the apostles. And so if he says he's going to be put to death, the process is going to be crucifixion. That's the way people are executed by the Romans. Crucifixion was not a Hebrew uh, means of execution. It was a Roman means of execution. But as we know, during the trials of Jesus, the Jews are saying, the chief priests are saying, you know, well, we, we can't take his life. We don't have that civil authority. But, uh, but you do, as the procurator of, of Judea, as the governor of, of Palestine, you have a right to do that. And if you, you have any respect for us and you want us to become and docile, then, then that's what you'll do. So the, the allusion to the cross is not an argument that this is a text from after the resurrection stuck back into the gospel. It's a common sight. It's a common presumption in the world in which Jesus lives. For anyone who wants to save his life will lose it, but anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. What then will a man gain if he wins the whole world and suffers the loss of his soul? Or what has a man to offer in exchange for his life? This is, Jesus is now saying this about us. He is a paradigm for our life as well. And we know that if we come first, if it's me before everybody else, in the end, we end up basically losers. And so that's the way it is with life. And he, he could have preserved his life. But if he had preserved his life, the instrument of our salvation would have not have come along, and his time on earth would have been simply as a visitor. And he understands, and you know, you stop and think about this. If anyone who saves his life is going to lose it, and who loses his life is going to save it. I think we see this, let's, let's look at this in terms of, of human relationships. I think that's an important part of what, of what we want to do. If you go into a marriage, 
and you say, this marriage is really the thing that's going to make me happy. This is all about what I want out of life. And that's how you live it, all about yourself. Probably is not going to turn out real well. It probably isn't. Because basically, it's the giving away of life that makes us fuller and more complete. The more we keep to ourselves, the smaller we become. The more we give away, the larger we become inside of ourselves. And so the more human we become, the more of who we're called to be we become, the more of, uh, of goodness we have, the more wisdom we have, the more understanding we have. And I think that basically down deep inside, we, we all know that, that to love another person is to give yourself away to the other person. I think we've said this before that um, true love really is when the well-being of the other person becomes more important to you than your own. And I think that that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, that our lives will become most complete and most full when we learn how to love. And when we learn how to love, which is not through education, but through experience and through goodness and through surrender to the Lord, through faith in Jesus Christ, through an acceptance of the power of the sacraments in our lives and so forth, we become people who are very capable of offering ourselves to the other. It's not that we keep nothing for ourselves because we all do, and the more we do that, the more friction, of course, there is. But Jeremiah says nothing is more torturous than the human heart. Anyone who thinks that there is no suffering in love doesn't really, hasn't really lived it very long in their life, I would suspect, because there is pain in it, there is suffering in it. And yet at the same time, there is a deep kind of joy that you get from nothing else. And so he says then that you can go out and without this kind of self-giving away, and he, re he identifies this symbolically with the cross. That's why I think, for instance, even in the preparation of young couples for marriage, one of the very important things that they can do is to pray together before the crucifix. Because the crucifix is not a perpetual model and symbol of suffering and death. It's, it shows us what it means for someone to love us. And it shows us what it means for us to love someone else. That are we able and are we willing to give away of ourselves for the sake of another? Are we able to do that? If we can do that, then we come to know really the deepest kind of joys of life and the deepest kind of meanings of life. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he did for us. That's why Peter is out so out of place because he sees what Jesus says is total negativity, when in fact it's not total negativity. It is, as a matter of fact, unbeknownst to them, if they knew that the Messiah's job, what his real mission was in the world, they would understand. But, but they're thinking it all in terms of what they get out of it. And that's exactly what so many people do and where so much of the disappointment in Christianity comes. I'm in it for what I get out of it, not for what I can contribute to something that makes life better for others. And that the more faithful I am and the more I surrender to the living God, the more I respect him and the more I understand his goodness to me and his sacrifice for me, 
the more I can live my life that way, the more impact I have on the healthiness of the church and the more impact I have on the well-being of the Christian community. If everyone had felt like that, you know, in the great wars that we have and the scandal of those wars was that it was Christian upon Christian. That's what's so stupid about them. It, it's just, it's just, it's awful the way that we are so insensitive to the futility and the nonsense that goes into this kind of conflict between people who profess a belief in Jesus Christ. The more we give to another, the greater we become. The more we claim for ourselves, the smaller we become. This is what Jesus said. This line, what, what then does it gain if a man, what will a man gain if he wins the whole world and suffers the loss of his soul? That was the pivot upon which St. Ignatius of Loyola turned and was converted. He understood, I could be a great, I wanted to be a great soldier. I wanted to be a great knight. I wanted glory and honor, and I wanted to give that glory and honor to the queen and so forth. I wanted all of that. And he would have just been another insignificant medieval knight who went through his life as he went through his life and disappeared from the story of humanity. As it is, he gave it all away. He gave it all to the Lord and becomes one of the great figures of the story of Christianity and one of the great teachers of Christianity in the whole history of the church. So yes, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to suffer grievously at the hands of the Sanhedrin and be put to death and be raised on the third day. And then he says, and then you. If you want to follow me, renounce yourself. Suffer for others. For anyone who wants to save his life, anyone who wants to accumulate everything for his life, it's going to lose everything in the end because in the end there's nothing left. But anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it, yes. Whoever gives it away out of love for God and love for others, true love, that which seeks their good, that which seeks their well-being, those are the ones who will come to discover the mystery of the cross, and those are the ones who will come to discover the mystery of the resurrection. And those are the ones who will come to discover the meaning of redemption and of salvation. And then he says to himself and to us, for what has anyone to offer in exchange for their life? That life is life eternal. It is not just, you know, for tomorrow. And then he goes on to say, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And when he does, he will reward each one according to his behavior. In other words, there is then a final day, a final age, a day of reckoning, a day of, a day of recognition, exactly recognition of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus and how that liberated us if we were faithful, um, if we took advantage of the great sacrament of reconciliation and found our way back onto the path after having lost it over and over again even in our lives, 70 times 7 in our lives, and yet go on and on as the Lord has invited us to do. So the gospel today is a gospel, it is a paradigm, it is a model. It's the story of Jesus and the disciples, not only in the first century, but also in the 20th century and in the 21st century.
And the lesson remains the same, that he suffered and died for love of us, that we might give ourselves out of love for others, and thereby come to the fullness of the understanding of who he is, what he has promised, and what eternal life is going to become. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he sucked in.